Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com slash build. That's Chime.com slash build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. In 2017, John Ossoff did something in a Georgia congressional race no Democrat had done in years. He gave a Republican a run for their money. Today, Ossoff is running for the United States Senate against a Republican incumbent who won't even show up to debate him. I caught up with Ossoff while he was on a six-day statewide bus tour for health, jobs, and justice. He talks about what he'll do for Georgia in each of those areas, and he explains why the Trump presidency has sparked what he calls movement energy in the peach state. Hear it all in this last Cape Up of 2020, right now. John Ossoff, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Great to be here. All right. So you just started a a bus tour, a six day bus tour, if I remember right. Where are you going and what kind of reception have you been been getting? Because it's been um, one day already so far. Yeah. Yesterday we were out in uh, in Madison and Augusta and uh, we will be hitting not just every major city, but uh, several dozen small towns Uh, will be very visible in rural Georgia. And this is the health, jobs and justice bus tour across the state and and the the program that we are encouraging folks to get out and vote to support is one that ensures every Georgian has great health care, that we invest in economic recovery and job creation, infrastructure and clean energy, and that we pass major criminal justice reform and a new civil rights act. And that is galvanizing our coalition here. There is movement like energy in Georgia right now. And as you've heard me often talk about, Jonathan, the situation in Georgia is unusual because you've got a young Jewish son of an immigrant running alongside a black preacher. This is not how Democrats have been running in the South for the last couple of decades. Uh, keep talk, talk more about that, because I've heard you say that in television interviews, uh, mostly in television I- in interviews. And, you know, you both, you and Reverend Warnock, who you're talking about, another person who's been on the podcast, um, you're both um, sons of the South. But for you in particular, you were born and raised in Georgia. As you just said, you're Jewish American. And for a lot of people, the South has not been hospitable to African Americans or to Jewish Americans. Talk, talk about your, your, um, your childhood, your upbringing. Uh, did you endure wild antisemitism there in Georgia? Not wild anti-Semitism, but it's something that pops up from time to time in the life of any Jewish person. Uh, I think that because I don't wear a kippah, right, a yarmulke, because I'm not outwardly observant, uh, I would not attract the same sort of overt, aggressive anti-Semitism as someone might whose Judaism is more apparent externally or as a black person might in the South uh, but I, I think that, you know, when I re- reflect on my childhood, so I was bar mitzvahed at the temple, uh, which is a, a reform synagogue in Atlanta. 
And one of the interesting things about the, the history of the temple is that it was 1957 when Dr. King established the SCLC in Atlanta. And it was 1958 when the temple was bombed. And from the late 1950s through the civil rights movement of the early and mid 1960s and all the way through the present day, there has been an alliance between blacks and Jews in Georgia. And when I first sat down to have a meal with Congressman John Lewis, because my first ever exposure to anything like public service was working as a very, very young man in his office. What very he young wanted man. to talk wait, about. Wait, wait. You were in high school. That's why I said very, very <laughs> young man, Jonathan. You know, exactly. Um, first meal we ever had for about 90 minutes. He wanted to talk about that alliance. He wanted to talk about how he had marched alongside rabbis and Jewish activists. Here I was a young Jewish man in his office. He wanted to talk about the necessity of nurturing and strengthening that alliance and not taking for granted that that would happen on its own. Uh, and so I, I reflect often, as you've no doubt heard me reflect about how he is looking down on us right now in Georgia and smiling. I interrupted you talking about, about your bus tour, six days across Georgia. You're about to have a very important visitor come down on December 15th by the name of President-elect Joe Biden. Why is it important for him to show up in Georgia to campaign for both you and Reverend Warnock? Well, look, we're, we're waking people up to the significance of these races and to the unusual implications and consequences of these races. Because it's not just the already historic circumstance that you've got two Senate races in one state and not just two Senate races in one state, but two Senate runoffs in one state. It's the extraordinary circumstance that the outcome here will determine control of the US Senate. And that means that whether or not the president-elect and the vice president-elect will have the capacity to enact an agenda, whether they will be able to appropriate the funds necessary to beat COVID-19 and to get economic relief directly to people, and a broader agenda, student debt relief, raising the minimum wage, investments in clean energy, infrastructure, and jobs, a new Civil Rights Act, a new Voting Rights Act, all of that depends upon victory here. We can have, for example, the two most productive years for civil rights and voting rights since 64, 65 in the United States Congress, but only with victory in Georgia. And I think that Joe Biden's presence here helps us to clarify those national stakes, which are also the stakes for our state. You, again, to not to keep harping on um, this notion that Georgia and the South are backward in some way, but that must be my northeastern, well, New Jersey, <laughs> my, my New Jersey bias. But you are running, um, you're running as a progressive in Georgia. Um, how has that message been, re been received? Obviously, it's been received well because you are in the runoff. Uh, but dispel this notion that um, the ideals that you are running on are some, somehow alien to the people of Georgia. Look, the Republican Party strategy in the South since Nixon, the Southern strategy, 
has been about dividing Southerners along racial and cultural lines. Dog whistle politics, or in, in many cases, it's not so subtle. I mean, even when, for example, David Perdue, as he infamously did, took the stage at a Trump rally and used his precious time with that kind of platform to mock Kamala Harris' South Asian heritage. It's the same political tradition of racism and division. Now, what is the purpose of that strategy? It's to prevent the emergence of a multiracial coalition that recognizes that despite its diversity, it shares economic and health interests. And so when we talk about health, jobs, and justice in the American South, that's about mobilizing and inspiring that broad coalition that we need to win here. People who are facing financial precarity, economic marginalization, low-income families, white or black in the South, white and black in the South, share core economic interests. The kind of infrastructure and jobs program I'm talking about, building new public health clinics and hospitals, investment in infrastructure, jobs, clean energy production, rural broadband, upgrading schools and public facilities, transport and transportation. And yes, civil rights legislation, because there is a race and a class dynamic to the inequity in our criminal justice system. This is a program that will benefit people of all backgrounds in Georgia. And so to your question, to be very precise, Jonathan, what, what I'm trying to do is speak to the daily needs of working people in Georgia. The working class in America is on this treadmill by design of financial precarity, low wage work, inadequate healthcare, so much stress, so much dependence on employers, and that's vulnerability, that's a lack of power. What we need to do is empower the people to come out and vote because they recognize that doing so will help them improve their daily lives build wealth for themselves and their families, access education without debt, make a living wage, get the health care that they need, just the basics in life. Well, speaking of you know, coming out to vote, the, it seems like the, the state of Georgia is doing everything possible to keep people from actually voting, closing down uh, polling places, trying to limit access to absentee ballots, do you think that that is going to succeed or do those efforts only serve to gin up um, uh, voter uh, activism, voter participation? It, it is that double-edged sword where, first of all, we have to recognize that Joe Biden winning Georgia is an outcome despite the apparatus of voter suppression. It does not represent the defeat of that GOP voter suppression strategy. Since Shelby County v. Holder in 2013, which eviscerated section four of the Voting Rights Act, the section that requires, as you well know, local and state jurisdictions to pre-clear changes to voting procedures for the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. Since that Shelby County v. Holder decision, states like Georgia have passed more and more restrictive voting laws, and you've seen the abuse of official authority to make it harder for Black people to vote. You've seen these lines of six, eight, 10 hours because of the uh, under-resourcing of voting infrastructure 
in majority black areas. You've seen the abuse of voter ID and signature match laws to disqualify uh, eligible naturalized US citizens from voting. The reason that David Perdue and Kelly Leffler are so furious that they have to justify their power in these runoffs is that they expected that that apparatus of voter suppression would keep the lid sealed on the pot. But the will of the people was so intense that it boiled over and forced them into runoffs. We have to be vigilant about protecting voting rights always in Georgia. We need to pass a new Voting Rights Act so that states like Georgia once again are subject to the jurisdiction of the Department of Justice in establishing voting procedures to protect the franchise. But to your other point, it is true that when you remind people that someone is trying to take away their sacred hard-fought voting rights, only galvanized in their determination to exercise them. So, you know, it used to be almost a taboo subject, like Democrats didn't want to talk about voter suppression for fear of deterring participation. Stacey Abrams has led the paradigm shift in Georgia where we, we confront it head on in public because people need to know, and then they're equipped to protect themselves. You, you talked about the, the, the boiling pot um, but it seems like your your opponent, Senator Perdue, is trying to ignore that the pot is boiling. He didn't even show up for your last debate. Um, the last time he did show up for a debate, let's continue the cooking analogies, you roasted him to his face. Do you think, well, one, is there another debate scheduled between now and the runoff? He doesn't want it. He tapped out. <laughs> he he doesn't want anymore. I'm ready to go, David, if you listen to Jonathan Capehart's podcast. Uh, and I, David, subscribe. And everyone needs to subscribe, by the way. Um, I mean, if we really want to extend the metaphor, right, it's, it's the melting pot boiling over. We could, we could, we could go uh, a long way here. Now, he doesn't want to debate. And yeah, he's trying to bunker down uh, and just um, avoid answering questions. See, he, I mean, Purdue has a lot of problems. I, Purdue, Purdue, I don't think has answered questions in, in local press in months and months and months. Purdue doesn't really go anywhere except Fox and right-wing radio. Purdue doesn't do public town halls. He doesn't, I don't think he really advises many of his events publicly. He refuses to debate because he's got these significant ethics issues uh, and questions that he just doesn't want to answer. So, you know, when I um, interviewed Jamie Harrison, about his race for the Senate in South Carolina, one of the things that he brought up and was fascinated by was the fact that, well, one, he did the right thing by going to all parts of South Carolina, talking, going into ruby red districts and talking to people. But the thing that fascinated him the most were the number of Republicans who came to him and expressed their dismay over what the, the, the sitting Senator Lindsey Graham was doing. In your campaign for a Senate in Georgia, John, are you hearing from Republicans who are um, disturbed or even enraged by not only what the National Party is doing, but what Senator Perdue has been doing, even ducking debates with you? Yeah, I encounter Republican supporters all the time. I think that most of that movement, most of that defection from the GOP and the Trump era uh, really happened in 2017, 2018, 2019, as, uh, as, as more and more people 
recognized that his political style and his policy agenda uh, were contrary to so many of the the, the core ideas that um, that a majority of Americans believe defines this country. Uh, so I, look, I, I I mean at every event I talk to you know Republicans who are supporting me or former Republicans who are voting Democrat, and and an important part of um, uh, the coalition that we're building in states like Georgia, you know we have to to uh, include people who have been reassessing their political identities uh, and are newer to the Democratic tent. So um, President Trump is not happy. He's not happy with the governor. He's not happy with the secretary of state because of uh, President-elect Joe Biden winning the state. Uh, President Trump, I guess, doesn't feel that those two, that those two guys are not um, sufficiently loyal and delivering the state to uh, to him. And so I'm just wondering, should his tweets be considered an in-kind contribution to you? Look, I, don't, you know, <laughs> I, get, I, I don't know what the impact on turnout will be of, of what the president is doing, um, but it's certainly making it more difficult for these different factions within the GOP to align on, 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 on these races and, and focus on getting out the vote. I think that what you're going to see, Jonathan, over the next few months as the dust settles on, on the presidential is more and more Republicans kind of willing to, to peek over the parapet and say, hey, you know, we just got crushed in a presidential reelect by the worst margin since Roosevelt beat Hoover in 32. So maybe this sort of um, total devotion to the Trump family is not a, a, a long-term electoral strategy worth embracing. And, and, and the, the steel that's been in the spine of some Republican election officials here in Georgia, despite all this pressure, I think reflects the beginning of the erosion of the, the, the grip that the Trumps have on the GOP. But I, I think that there's also a bigger picture here, which is that Trump's rise also gave rise to a new political movement in America. I mean, the, the, the renaissance in civic engagement that we've seen over the last four years and, and a lot of the, the sort of the initial wins of that were, were felt around the time of my 2017 special election bid. Um, this just exponential growth in volunteerism, the, the explosion in grassroots political giving, folks chipping in three to five bucks as paychecks allow, uh, all of the activism led by women the young people of color who have grown activism, voter registration, mobilization, advocacy for civil rights and criminal justice reform. This, this coalition, this movement grew largely in opposition to Donald Trump. And our task now is to ensure that we continue to build on this momentum and that this movement is now re-energized and redirected toward more positive ends, not merely opposition but the enactment of a legislative agenda for the people that will help working people in this country. And these two Senate races in Georgia are the first test of how we continue to push forward as a team with this extraordinary movement that's blossomed over four years. And here in Georgia, it's about health, jobs, and justice. Uh, and, and so I am so excited to see what we can achieve over the next few years by 
taking all of the goodwill that's been harnessed and grown since Donald Trump was elected, all of that angst that was channeled into activism and civic engagement, let us put it to work winning elections and powering a legislative agenda that serves the, the daily needs of working people who have been neglected by America's political class for nearly half a century. Well, you know, to your point um, about your 2017 race against Karen Handel, you forced her into uh, a runoff. You lost that you, you lost that election 48.2 to 51.8, but it wasn't supposed to be that way because that was a ruby red district. Um, and now you're running for, for Senate and you're in another runoff. Two questions. First, what did you learn in that race in 2017 that has helped you, and for a congressional district, that has helped you in your 2020 race statewide? The first lesson I learned is not to care what uh, the GOP says about me, period. I mean, getting back to that race, you know, we all remember what it became, but sometimes it's hard to remember how unlikely that was. Because I was 29 years old, I, I jumped in a field of 18 candidates. The Republican incumbent Congressman Tom Price, whose resignation to join Trump's cabinet triggered the special election, had just been reelected weeks before I got in that race by 24%, and it became the biggest U.S. House race of all time. Uh, and and what I learned is to pay no mind to what gets thrown at me and not to worry about the attack ads, not to worry about the slander, not to worry about the smear campaigns. That is not the point and not that relevant. You know, for all of the sound and the fury of the oppo and the negatives, it's not what matters. Focus on what matters for people because the other lesson that I learned, getting back to how we harness this movement energy moving forward, is the extraordinary power of ordinary people to make change when they band together and work. We ran the largest volunteer-driven get-out-the-vote effort in congressional history in that race, more than 13,000 volunteers. That drove the strongest turnout ever in a special election for the U.S. House, the strongest youth vote ever in a special election for the U.S. House. And I was up against like basically three anonymously funded Republican super PACs. I think Sheldon Adelson and the oil and gas and private prison industries probably accounted for half or more of all their money and half a million grassroots donors contributing average amounts of 21 bucks were powering my campaign and using that kind of grassroots fundraising and massive volunteer engagement. We went toe to toe with the national Republican machine in a district that had been GOP held since 78. So what does it mean for this race? What it means is that we are focused so intensively on organizing movement energy in Georgia in these pivotal races at this pivotal moment in our history. We are running the biggest turnout effort in the history of Senate races. We are galvanizing the people to participate by talking about health, jobs, and justice. And that's not a slogan. Those aren't just catchwords. That means establishing healthcare as a human right in the United States. That means an unprecedented investment in jobs and infrastructure and clean energy. That means passing the most ambitious civil rights legislation since 1964. We can do those things if we win these races. 
And so making sure people understand the stakes, the opportunity, and how to get involved to help us win. That's why we're traveling the state as early voting begins this week. And then that leads to my second question. And that is, you know, one of the big things is that in Georgia, particularly, there is a huge drop off in turnout from the general election to to the runoff by design. Given everything that you've seen on the campaign trail now, you're now on a on a bus tour. How concerned are you that that drop off in turnout um, will happen again and will result in you not not winning the Senate seat? Well, there's never been a runoff like this in Georgia history. We have we haven't had a federal runoff a runoff for a federal race in Georgia since 2008. And the state has become younger and more diverse by the year. And there's been an unprecedented investment in political organizing, in voter registration, in volunteer recruitment, and building a turnout infrastructure here since then. It's not that I'm worried about a fall off in turnout. And, and those the takes about Democratic voters falling off in runoffs or Black voters falling off in runoffs, you know, those should go right into the, into the dustbin. Those are, those are, those are tired. And, and, and not relevant. What I'm worried about is simply mobilizing the most intense enthusiasm for voting in the, the history of our state. That's why we're taking it across the state this week. That's why Reverend Warnock and I are both so focused on energizing people. I keep talking about creating that movement energy in Georgia. This doesn't feel and cannot feel like an ordinary election. This is the the the, the most important legislative election in the history of our state with the highest stakes of any legislative races in the history of our state. And we have to excite people with a sense of opportunity about what's possible, how daily life can improve for working people in Georgia when we win. John Ossoff, candidate for the United States Senate from the great state of Georgia. Thank you very, very much for being on the podcast. Good luck on the campaign trail. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for having me. And congrats again on the Sunday show. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Hopefully this is the last time you hear this ad, because with Chime Checking Account, features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts. Or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals 24. That's chime.com goals 24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details.